The Cannabis Conversation. A European perspective on the emerging legal cannabis industry. Welcome to the Cannabis Conversation with Anoush Desai, where we explore the new legal cannabis industry by speaking to the professionals that are helping shape it. Back down to earth this week after our 150th episode last week with Professor Raphael Mishulam. Once again, huge honour to have him on the show. I was really pleased at how well received it was. And I was left blushing with a number of very nice messages from some of you. So thank you. This show, as ever, is sponsored by our good friends at Lumino. Lumino are a boutique HR and recruitment agency for the European cannabis industry. Our guest this week is Matt Lamers from MJ Biz. We talk about some of the corporate failings that have happened in the cannabis industry that are fairly well publicized. It's really useful to understand just how important good corporate leadership and strategy is to commercial success in any industry, but particularly this space. And our friends at Lumino have successfully recruited several C-suite roles for commercial teams across cannabis and are always speaking to more talent at this level who are looking to get in. They're genuinely really great friends and are really well plugged into how companies are growing and evolving in this space. So as always, if you do need any help with HR or recruitment, please do get in touch with them at luminorecruit.com. And please don't forget to mention my name when you do. I'm actually starting to weigh up a few conferences and expos to go to. Current one I'm thinking of is CB Expo in Zurich in Switzerland in April. Please do get in touch if you're planning on going to. I'd love to meet up there. Anyway, now on with the show. Enjoy. On today's show, I have Matt Lamers. Matt is international editor for MJ Biz. For those that don't know, MJ Biz is the leading industry news and data source for cannabis. Matt, welcome. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Thanks. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, no. Well, thank you. Well, as we kind of come towards the end of the year, where in the world are you today? I'm in about an hour outside of Toronto in Niagara. Nice, nice. Is it cold? I always remember December in... No, it's actually a lot warmer than it it usually is at this time of year. It's about, it's a few degrees, so it's not even cold enough to make an ice rink in the backyard yet. (laughs) You guys do cold very well, I think, in Canada. Yeah, we kind of have to live with it, right? So there's no (laughs) point in fighting it. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. We're going to talk about, I mean, I'm a regular follower of yours on LinkedIn, and it's great content that you put out. So I'm really excited to have you on the show and talk about some of the the things we're going to talk about in terms of the industry hype and and what's the reality. But we'll start where where is customary and begin with you and your personal story, if you don't mind. If you can sort of just introduce yourself and say a bit about your background and how and why you got into the cannabis space. Great. Yeah, thank you. So I've been a journalist since I graduated university, but after I left university, I, I moved overseas. So I've actually spent more of my adult life much more of my adult life outside of Canada than I have inside of Canada. So I work in South Korea, Japan, China a little bit, and in the Caribbean. And then my wife and I wanted to, we have two kids, and we wanted our kids to go to school in Canada. So we moved back here about five, six years ago. In terms of joining the cannabis industry, it was an opportunity that arose that I was excited about because I kind of saw that I mean, at first, it's an exciting, it's an exciting NASA industry. Everyone knows that, right? It's just fun to be part of it. But there's endless amounts of stories. Like I could, I could write five or six stories a day if I had the energy and the time to do it. Five or six good stories, but you know, it's 
time constraint, so I can only do like maybe one or two. <laughs> yeah, so I've been, I joined MJ Biz from, at the time I was living in the Cayman Islands, I was a journalist there, and I was looking for an opportunity to move back to North America, and that came up. I knew a lot of the people at the company already, so I knew that it, it would be good, I guess, mutually, good for me, good for them. In the cannabis industry, I think we need more journalists, traditional journalists, more people asking hard questions, because what you get oftentimes is content that's curated for people who want specific kinds of content, or I should say narratives. So you have a lot of reporting from non-traditional media that I won't say it serves to pump stocks, but they're creating news for people who want to read positive information about their investments. And really that at the end of the day, that really doesn't help anybody because it's not critical. You're not, it's not critical. It's just, you're just looking for reasons to confirm what you already believe. A hundred percent. I mean, media is a personal passion topic of mine and yeah, I could totally agree. A lot of it is self-serving. It's almost sort of reprinting press releases right. to a certain extent. I just, just before we kind of delve into that topic, what kind of areas were you covering as a journalist prior to cannabis? And was there any of that relevant as you stepped into this world? Not directly relevant, no, but I've covered a lot of different areas. So in the Caribbean, I was kind of, in Cayman, I was kind of a jack of all trades at that newspaper. I mostly an editor, less of a reporter, but I did do some writing, covering their parliament and stuff like that. So I, all industries. And then in, in Cayman, in South Korea also is the same thing. I was an editor, reporter covering a kind of a broad array of topics, but. I guess the way journalists are trained is to be able to report on all different industries with an equal level of scrutiny across the board and to become an expert in it as, as quick as you can. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's less of an issue when I ask this question to Canadians for obvious reasons, but did you kind of encounter any stigma or were you in any way kind of hesitant about the cannabis space at all coming from different industries before? Personally, I wasn't hesitant about it, but I think it's reasonable to think that some people would be. I wasn't hesitant about it just because I like the challenge and the excitement and, and I, I really enjoyed doing something a little bit different than other, you know, other mainstream journalists. You know, I, I don't like following that traditional career path where you're just grinding away in one city for your entire life and moving up the ladder. You know, some people love that and they thrive in that. But personally, I like to challenge myself in different geographies and different topics and and this kind of provided that opportunity to do that you know because it was really really hard it was a really hard industry to jump into because I didn't know anything about it when I started and it took about a year to I think really figure it out in terms of what was actually happening so one of the earliest stories I wrote that I was proud of is that when there were dozens of cannabis stocks back in the day People didn't know how to value them. How do you value a cannabis stock when they have no sales or little sales, right? I mean, they're all saying they're going to make billions of dollars. So how do you value those companies? Well, one thing they did was they invented something called funded capacity. And that basically just means how much cultivation space can your company establish? How much cultivation space does your company have enough money to establish? And that was how they valued them. So I thought that was a little bit ridiculous because just having the capacity to build something that doesn't mean you're going to do it well. Like that's just, you know, in any business, right? You can't just say, I'm going to build, unless you're Elon Musk, you know, you can't just say, you're, I'm going to build a car factory here and a battery plant there. And then, you know, I'll make a billion dollars. I mean, most people can't do that, especially in cannabis. It's too hard. 
too complicated, especially in agriculture, right? Because cannabis is agriculture. And it's not in any way linked to demand either, is it? Right. No, it isn't. And so what I did was I added up all of the cultivation space and the production that the company said they were going to grow in late 2017. So this was a long time ago. And then I found that there was already that if businesses successfully produced what they said they were going to produce, then they all Canada already had more than enough cultivation space. So the next question is, is that, well, maybe they won't produce what they say they're going to produce. Well, if they're not going to produce what they're going to say they're going to produce, then you can't value them on funded capacity. It didn't make any sense. It was completely absurd. So yeah, I wrote a few stories about that in 2017 and 2018. And really from there is when I started to realize the industry needed more critical analysis of what the executives said they were going to do, because most of what they said they were going to do was complete nonsense. And so why are they saying that? I mean, these aren't morons. These aren't idiots. They're saying it because they know retail investors get excited about this job. And they say it anyways. Retail investors need to ask themselves hard questions. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I love this. Yeah, I remember in 2018, there was an investment conference I went to and a lot of Canadian big boys came over and it was a succession of the, you know, the leadership team or sometimes the CEO getting up and it was just a one person would say, well, I'm going to build us a million square foot and the next guy is I'm going to build 1.1 million. And it was this kind of big dick waving yeah. contest, I think. It's the way I described it. <laughs> I was going to do a story about this a few months ago, but then I, I decided to scrap it because I didn't think it was worth it. But I was going to look at like, so how much cannabis are these big companies growing now compared to what they said they were going to grow five years ago? At the end of the day, I didn't do it because it just would have been a lot of work. And everyone knows the answer, right? Everyone knows. It's like almost like very little. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Having to scale back all the time as well. But we'll get yeah. into that in a minute, I think. But it's a great way to kick it off. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about MGBiz and what you obviously, you know, I've had Alfredo on and have Chris before. Maybe you could tell us a bit about MGBiz from your perspective and the specific areas that you cover. Well, first of all, MGBiz is a conference company, but we're also a media company. And that's where, I mean, I'm proud to work at MGBiz because we have a team of journalists and then we have the rest of the company. And there's generally a wall in between the journalists and like, for example, the marketing people and the salespeople. Like I never talk to those guys. And there has to be, there has to be that independence because then there's no way to first, they can't influence your coverage. And second, they can't be perceived to be influencing your coverage. So perception is important too. So, I mean, I'm proud to work at MJ Biz because they found a way to have profitable journalism, right? We make a lot of money from the conferences. And then from that revenue, we fund, we're able to pay journalists to do what I do. So it works. It's a really good model. And obviously the company, you know, it's good for the company because it helps them create a reputation in the industry and get their name out there and get a, attention to the conference and the expo. So that's why they do it, you know. But it's still fair. I mean, there's, not, there's nothing wrong with that because there is that independence and there's a perception of independence. There's both things, which is really important. MJ Biz, yeah. So I guess it's about how old is MJ Biz? I'm going to say just over 10 years old now. And oh, wow. When they started, I love hearing old stories about when MJ Biz started because they were like, oh, yeah, we're going to put on these expo and then we're hoping for like a few dozen people and then like hundreds show up. Every time they have expectations, which are reasonable expectations, they exceed them because there's so much demand for a reliable information when we do these conferences. And also, you know, it's just a great networking event. 
that generally attracts like people from around the world, more so before the pandemic than it does now. And were you able to make it out to Vegas this year? No, unfortunately I didn't because I had to make a decision in the summer about whether or not I was going to go. And same with the company, like they had to decide in the summer if they were going to do the international content online or in person. And that's my role there. So so the journalists, we have two roles in the company, really. We do journalism, but we also go to the conference and we interview people on stage, right? So it's just basically what we do in print on stage. I couldn't make it because the company decided to do the international content online. Mm. And then at that point in the summer, I had to make a decision. Am I going to go to Vegas or stay home and just do my content online? So I just stayed home because... I just didn't think there's much point of going to a, a conference and then sit behind a screen to do my content online. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, would, I would prefer to be on stage and, and talking to people and, and whatnot. But unfortunately, it didn't work out for me. But the people that did go loved it. And we had pretty good numbers, about 20, I think around 25,000 people, maybe a little more. If we didn't have a pandemic, we'd probably be much higher now. But I think 25K is still a pretty good number under the circumstances. That is a pretty good number. Yeah, I knew a few people who made it out there as well, and they, they they seem to have a great time. So, yeah, it sounds like it was, I mean, given all the circumstances, a, a relative success, all things being yeah. considered. And just to go back to you and your role, what bits do you cover under, you know, the international editor remit? So I cover everything outside of the United States. Okay. And these days I'm focusing, for the last, I would say, 10 months or so, I've been focusing more on Canada. We're going to say 80 90% of my stories are focused on Canada. And we made this decision to do that partly because of how businesses are adjusting their priorities right now. And they're focusing on sales where they can actually make money. Right. So previous years and the four years previous to this year, a lot of my coverage, half of it was outside of North America. One of the big main themes of my reporting was that there weren't a lot of sales in those countries. And so my company earlier this year, you know, we had, we talked a lot about it and we said, let's just focus on Canada because that's where most of the money is being made right now. You know, Canada is still the number one medical, Canada is still the number one federally regulated, aka legal medical marijuana market in the world, which most people are surprised to hear about because I think the perception is that, you know, Germany is bigger than Canada and Israel is bigger than Canada, but actually they're not. They're much smaller. Israel's much smaller. Germany will actually, I expect Germany to be the number one market in the world starting next at some point next year. I think they'll overtake Canada like early to mid 2022. Interesting. I mean, it makes sense sort of prioritize that in terms of commerce, I suppose. There's, there's, there's interesting bits of news, I guess, coming out internationally, but there's sort of pockets, right? You know, Thailand's doing something here and Malta is going online here. And- it's really incremental and it's important. So if you look at just as an example, Malta, right? So Malta basically decriminalized recreational cannabis. I guess you could say they legalized it. I don't consider it legalization unless you can legally buy it and you can't still in Malta. You can grow it. You can join a club. I'm guessing you can trade it. I asked the lawmakers there about that. Can you trade it? Can you buy it from another person in the club? And they didn't have an answer for me. So I'm guessing that means no, right? It's not in the regulations anyway. So it's important social progress. And I think that's what we're seeing around the world right now is the early kind of the first steps of decriminalizing cannabis, which is important because people shouldn't be in jail for, you know, for buying a little bit of weed. It's ridiculous. And it does more to damage minorities and in Canada, indigenous people in the United States, maybe more black people than anyone else. So they kind of suffer the 
brunt of this criminalization. So it's important social progress around the world. I don't think we're going to see the big markets develop that people expect for, you know, quite a few more years. Even in Germany, maybe like the new coalition says they're going to legalize sales. I mean, will they? I mean, a lot of people say stuff and then they don't do it. Like President Biden, for example. I mean, you always get these politicians coming out and saying they're going to do something that's popular, but then they don't do it. Canada was lucky because Trudeau actually didn't get much done in, his, in the last six years. Probably the only important thing he did was legalizing cannabis, you know? So I, it's just good luck for us because I expected it to be take longer and to be harder than it was in Canada because it's not as popular as people think it is. Some people still yeah. think it should be illegal, right? So anyway, yes, around the world, I think incremental development to functional, meaningful commercial markets, but the most important steps right now are decriminalizing the drugs so that people stop going to jail for a little bit of weed. Yeah, absolutely. We In a recent episode, we had a panel, including Alfredo, obviously your former colleague, on to talk about Germany and to add a dose of realism to the excitement, I think, that here in Europe, we're all desperate for things to move on a lot quicker than they are. So yeah, and for all the same points that you said, it's probably going to take a bit longer than everyone hopes for. But you know, that's the way it is. But it's coming, you know, like the tidal wave is just starting to form right now. It's just a ripple right now. And but I mean, no one really knows if it's going to be five, 10 or 20 years, right? Yeah, I don't know. All I know is what's what exists today and what exists today are a bunch of tiny markets and mostly decriminalized markets. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that would be another topic. <laughs> today, we're going to talk a bit about hype versus reality, which is, you know, not a million miles away from that. But we maybe we should begin with, you know, a brief history lesson on Canadian cannabis it seems to be because of the public market aspect, fairly driven by hype. It's a huge topic in itself, but maybe you can talk about some of, you mentioned the funded capacity issue before, but what are some of the kind of hype factors that built the Canadian cannabis industry as it is today? I think it's expectations from retail investors. And I talk about those guys a lot because they have an undue influence on markets and an undue influence on decisions that executives make. So why are these CEOs and boards making all these crazy decisions they know will probably fail? Because all these guys went to like Harvard Business School and all these expensive schools, right? So they, like they're smart guys. So why are they making these decisions? They're making these decisions because retail investors want them to, because retail investors are their current pool of stock investors, much more so than institutional investors. And the problem with that is that then you have this group of people who don't really understand the industry as much as they think they do. And they don't understand the companies as much as they think they do. And then you have boards making decisions to attract that money. They want that capital. They want their stocks to rise. And the current pool of available investors is mostly retail investors. So that's why they end up doing things like buying whiskey companies. That's why they end up doing things like building 2 million square foot greenhouses when they only need maybe 200,000 square feet or less. That's why they do things like buying a company in Latin America for $800 million that has zero sales. I mean... I don't want to pick on any one company because there's no point because this isn't a problem of one of any one large business. This is a problem for all of the large businesses. This is a problem for all retail investors. 
the reason stocks are fall, I don't, first of all, I don't follow the stock market because it's so detached from reality. I check it maybe once a month. It's not a mystery. Like, why are cannabis stocks down like 90, 95% in the last two years? It's because the available pool, it's like incest. It's the available pool of money that's being invested in the stock market. It started like this. It started as a finite amount of money. And then it's getting smaller because stocks are going down and new money isn't coming in. New money isn't coming in because these are mostly, most people know if they look deep into them, that they're not good businesses and they don't have sustainable business models. Yeah. I've worked in a couple of public companies, some good and some bad. And the worst ones are, well, the ones that were driven by the quarterly updates and the decision-making was very much about what they could announce to the city in the UK and London. So, and I mean, it seems like an obvious question. Do you think in part that the decision-making is driven by share price, but it's also because they are compensated based on share price rises? I don't really know. You know, it's like, yeah, I've done a couple of stories about how executives were incentivized at one company. At one company I looked at, I did a story on how companies how executives were incentivized to make the wrong decisions. So in other words, they were their bonuses were predicated on establishing large cultivation facilities in Canada and outside of Canada when none of those cultivation facilities were needed. So to answer your question, in that case, yes. Are they doing it? Is it unscrupulous? I don't think it's unscrupulous. They're just doing what they're paid to do, right? It's, it's the way the bonus structure is created. Most companies don't reveal enough about the bonus formula about exactly what metrics their executives are graded on. In most cases, that's not disclosed. So it's hard to say that they'll disclose the yeah. formula that the executive compensation committee used to pay the bonuses. But within that formula, they don't, they usually don't disclose the metrics that they're being graded on. For example, like establishing massive greenhouses in Canada and overseas when none of them are needed. Right. Yeah. So, and also in that example, that company, no need to name them because it's, you know, the same problems across the board. Their executive, the metrics they were graded on to be awarded bonuses, they didn't include profitability. Revenue was a very tight, like 10 or 20% of the bonus structure. So, why are you in business? You're in business to make money, revenue, and to make a profit. If only like 20% of your bonus structure is predicated on those two metrics, then you're going to have executives making all kinds of bizarre decisions that incentivizes them to make them these weird decisions, right? That aren't necessarily best for the company's future. Yeah. So that's something probably compensation committees need to look closer at. It's a major problem though, across the board, executive compensation in Canada for cannabis CEOs. My opinion on this is no secret. They make too much money. You shouldn't have a CEO making $40 million, $50 million when like the mean compensation at the company's only $45,000. It's unfair. No one wants to work in a company where you're making 45 grand and the CEO's making $40 million. Yeah. I think this is an issue beyond cannabis as well. Certainly in, oh, yeah, absolutely. in London, executive com um, compensation is always a hot topic. But And so we've talked a bit about Canadian cannabis and, and you know some of the big companies. It's a very well-covered topic. Are you seeing anything different from the big US MSOs? I don't actually look at them closely. I don't have time because like I'm doing, I'm reporting on Canada and the rest of the world. So I don't have time to look at the States. So I don't, to answer your question, honestly, I don't know what they're doing. Yep. I'm seeing early indications though, that 
they are taking steps towards making the same mistakes Canadian LPs made five years ago. Early indications, I can't say anything conclusively yet, and I won't name any companies, but you can look at the ones that have made steps overseas, look at what they're doing, and look at what they say about why they're doing it, and they're wrong. Like one large MSO got a new CEO this week or last week, and the CEO said something about, I'm just paraphrasing, something about how the greatest opportunities for that company are overseas. That's wrong because the American market is addressable for them and it's massive. The rest of the world's market, if we're talking about recreational cannabis, is let's just say it's approximately $0 outside of North America. And then the medical market is only worth under $1 billion outside North America, which compared to the American market is peanuts. So you get this new CEO of a large MSO coming in and maybe it was just a line from a marketing person though that threw it in a press release. I've never talked to the CEO, so I don't know if the individual really believes it or not, but if that individual believes that the greatest opportunities are overseas, then that company is in deep crap. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, that segues nicely to my next question. What is the hype that's being sold about international? So I've had a couple of people on previously to talk about this subject. And I think one of the issues was that, you know, in Canada, it's obviously a, it's a smaller population. And so to kind of, there's only so much capacity and demand that you can get from there. So I think it sounded like a lot of the bigger cannabis companies in Canada were sort of selling the international dream in order to sort of get more investors. So when we talk about international, what is the hype that's being sold about international by some of these big Canadian companies? I think that there isn't a lot of hype from the Canadian LPs these days about international because they already made their mistakes and they already lost their money. They already sold their investments for penny on the dollar all like all over the place. So I don't think that there's a lot of hype coming from Canadian LPs these days about markets outside of North America, but there is still a lot of hype. You know, like I just said from that American company, from some other companies in Europe and, and Australian businesses and whatnot. I don't know. I mean, I do think it goes back to retail investors because the companies and the investors that are hyping unrealistic markets are always 100% of the time companies that are publicly traded. So has the stock market ruined the cannabis industry already? Everyone was really excited when five years ago, everyone got really excited when a new analyst was launched coverage of a cannabis business. Everyone got really excited when cannabis companies got listed on stock on the Toronto Stock Exchange, on the New York Stock Exchange, on the London Stock Exchange. You know, but I'd like to point out that none of those businesses have been successful. None of the cannabis companies that went public early in anywhere around the world, whether it's London, Toronto, or New York, have been successful. And I'm not counting the MSOs here because they can't legally trade on an American stock exchange or on a, a very small Canadian exchange. So I'm mostly referring to Canadian LPs maybe some Australian ones. So I think that the stock market, the way that I guess our capitalist system is oriented and structured in terms of like companies going public and getting capital, and then they have to use that capital, but they didn't need it in the first place. (laughs) So like a company like Tilray going out and raising a billion dollars, there's nothing Tilray right now can spend a billion dollars on that would be useful. So that's why they're buying whiskey companies and beer companies, which they're going to have to sell down the road when they sell off non-core assets. Every company 
at some point will be selling off non-core assets, probably in a couple of years, maybe next year, maybe the year after, at some point, who knows when, right? And those are the businesses that are going to go, right? So the whiskey investment is going to be gone and the trucking distribution is going to be gone. And it's like, so you got to focus on your core business. Your core business can't be 20 different things, especially in cannabis because it's so complicated. So anyways, to go back to your question, I think that the capital markets in New York and Toronto have warped the cannabis industry and given money to businesses that A, didn't need it, and B, there's nothing to spend it on. So it warps the whole industry because you're effectively rewarding the worst performing companies. Yeah. Companies that are successful don't need to go on the stock market and raise $500 million. They're going to grow organically right now. Yeah. Do you think one of the reasons is because at the beginning, it was hard to you know raise investment in the traditional ways from institutional funders and banks and things like that? So they kind of felt forced to go on and list publicly and then they probably raised too much money? I don't know. You know, I think that they list publicly because they want liquidity because and that liquidity will give them access to more investors. Investors want to be able to get in and to get out, especially retail investors. And that's kind of the problem is that they're building businesses geared towards the expectations of retail investors. But as we've already talked about, most retail investors don't understand the businesses or the industry enough to make these decisions. So essentially you have a large group of retail investors that are running the cannabis industry right now. They're the ones that are deciding who gets the capital, which is crazy. Yeah, no, it is crazy. And so, you know, stepping down a level, the big LPs is a well kind of covered issue or topic rather by yourself and many others. Are there good private companies that sort of flying under the radar um, in Canada? Yeah, there are in Canada for sure. Rita Can was one that was just bought by Hexo. So I don't know how they're doing now. But I know that I've been reporting on this for like a year that almost every time there's a large M&A in Canada, the company that does the buying almost immediately has major problems. And that's because they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They're doing it because they can't grow organically. So that means their businesses fly. If you can't go or grow your business organically in an industry like cannabis that's booming, your business is deeply, deeply flawed. Yeah. And so you buy another company to kind of band-aid over those flaws. Then when you buy that other company and you integrate it into your flawed business, then your sales will continue to decline relative to your peers. And that's exactly what happens every single time. It's unbelievable. <laughs> well, because fundamentally they don't have the right practices in the first place. So they kind of end up poisoning the, the good apple that they buy. Right. Yeah. And I've talked to some successful CEOs about this and they, you know, they, they say that it's not a surprise to them when their competitors buy other businesses and then they immediately struggle. It's because you can't build a, a house on a shaky foundation is what they're doing. Because then you're going to, or it's like you're building, you have a house with a shaky foundation and you add another level to it. You have another story to an already crumbling house. And so it's only going to make it crumble faster. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, very sadly, I think we're sort of repeating this here in the UK. There's been a few companies list that have listed. I know there's several more waiting in the wings and it seems like they may have paused because of the poor performance of the initial companies. But I mean, again, it's similar. They've never you know, near being profitable or even any kind of meaningful revenues before they listed. So it's all a bit crazy. Right. And so the biggest mistake, in my opinion, that companies make 
around the world, cannabis companies, is going public because they don't need as much capital as they think they need. Yeah. Because what are you going to do in the UK right now? The market's so small. Why do you need capital? You don't need to build a greenhouse in Portugal. Why are you building a greenhouse in Portugal? There's no market there. Yeah. And there's not just one. There's about five. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yes, it's a bit crazy, isn't it? I mean, I would hope, I guess, the industry is much older in Canada than maybe when a lot of these companies started out. There were very few options and the stock market was a much more compelling one. You know, taking out the personal reasons for exits, et cetera, driven by initial investors. Now there just seem to be more of a kind of venture capital ecosystem and, and maybe a bit of a private equity one as well. So maybe there is some other areas of funding that mean that you don't need to list. I think so. I think there's more. Well, okay. That's true that there's more opportunities for funding in different areas like just traditional bank debt in Canada. Now, cannabis businesses can get bank accounts and they can use credit cards, you know, and they can do all, all these things that businesses are supposed to be able to do, although there are still big banking challenges in Canada. But theoretically, there have never been more options to get funded. But however, in practice, because Canadian cannabis companies have lost like billions and billions of dollars people are reluctant to lend them money, understandably. And so small companies now that need capital, it's hard for them to get it because they're not publicly traded. And then, you know, lenders see all these companies losing money. And so they're like, I don't want to lend money to a cannabis company. So good ones have a hard time these days getting capital. But I mean, luckily, the Canadian federal government is giving businesses like tens of millions of dollars for free. I say that facetiously because I think it's ridiculous. So Canada has something called COVID cash and they give it to, well, I call it COVID cash. They give it to businesses to hire and retain their workers. But what they ended up doing was giving all this money to the worst performing businesses who laid off thousands of people, thousands of people. So 6,000 people in Canada's cannabis industry lost their jobs last year. And that was despite the Canadian federal government giving those businesses $150 million to not fire 6,000 people. And this, I should know that this isn't scandalous at all in Canada, which is really weird because you're giving businesses tens of millions of dollars to hire, to rehire and retain your workers due to COVID. And they, instead they lay off thousands of people. And I think the coverage that you had, the executive still picked up decent bonuses as well. Oh, right. So yeah, executive bonuses didn't take a hit at all, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> They're making tons of money. Ooh. Also, if you're evaluating cannabis companies too, look at cash compensation, not just share compensation, because some of these companies have massive cash compensation, massive cash compensation for their executives. And I'm not talking the highest in like the cannabis industry either. I'm talking the highest in any industry in Canada. So you have to ask yourself, like retail investors need to ask harder questions. I can't, you know, I can't be the only one asking the hard questions here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah, no, have no, so no. much energy, so much stamina. Oh, wow. This is such a sad indictment of capitalism, isn't it? (laughs) It really is. Like, I'm not like that's an honest statement. It's capitalism has taken a real hit in the COVID era. And the cannabis industry is really trashing the reputation of cannabis of capitalism because the worst companies get the most money. The worst executives get paid the most money. Investors are rewarding the worst performing businesses. The Canadian federal government is funding the worst performing businesses. I thought capitalism was supposed to be an efficient method of distributing wealth and opportunity, but it really hasn't been. 
And I think this is the problem with the stock market. Theoretically, the stock market is very effective in established industries. The stock market is terrible in new and burgeoning industries like cannabis and the internet. Remember, the same thing happened in the internet for the the dot-com bubble. For any new industry, the stock market blows it every single time. Yeah, cronyism and poor governance. It's it's all too depressing. Let's end it with a nice high then, pun intended. Where are you finding some hope and you know on the international scene other than or maybe you can talk about some positive signs from Canada, but anything that you're kind of looking for? So I started a series of interviews with CEOs of so-called successful cannabis companies, companies just I think that are doing well. And so they do exist, and I've been trying to put more of a spotlight on companies that are doing well rather than just reporting on companies that are doing poorly. So right before this conversation, I was writing up an interview with Oxley CEO Hugo Alves. I think that Oxley's, although they're not profitable, I think that they're doing well. They're growing organically. They're not making the same mistakes that everyone else is making. Pure Sun Farms is another one that's doing well. A lot of other small businesses very small businesses that are doing that, doing well. And they have to do well because they're not publicly traded. So they need to watch every dollar that they spend. You know, they can't give out massive bonuses to their executives and they can't build huge greenhouses. They have to only expand after they've been successful. So they, they're successful first and then they make money and then they invest in that success. And then they just keep getting better and better and better. And that's kind of how the new generation of cannabis businesses in Canada are operating. And it's interesting because the established, the quote unquote established cannabis businesses in Canada, the big ones that everyone knows have crashing market share, all of them, but the smaller companies are growing market share. They're growing revenue. Some of them are even growing in profitability. And I think 2022 will be interesting because you might see a company like Oxley or someone else attain the number one market share position in Canada. And that will be almost groundbreaking because they didn't spend raise and spend billions of dollars to do it. So you look at other companies like the big ones, I don't need to name, you know, everyone knows them. They raised and spent and lost billions of dollars to get to where they are today. And they have declining market share. So it'll be interesting to see if a smaller company can surpass those com- a company like that, which would be pretty cool to see. I mean, it would be neat. I don't want any business to fail. I mean, it would be great if they all were successful, but It'll be interesting to see business that grows organically and realistically surpass all of the big companies. Most people don't even, analysts don't even cover Oxley. You know, most people never even heard of it. But overseas, I think that I'm excited for these incremental advancements that are being made overseas are exciting to me. So long as you moderate your expectations, like so long as you don't think like, okay, Germany is going to be a, $7 $7 billion industry in 2022 or 2023, like which isn't going to happen. So long as you have reasonable expectations, A, you'll find lots of investment opportunities and B, you'll probably have a better portfolio for investors anyways. You know, I think there's a lot going on in, in places like Germany and even in the UK and even in Australia and in Israel, there are plenty of businesses that are growing organically and successfully and doing very well. So I'm excited to see that. I'm excited to watch that in 2022. Like I said, the incremental developments of decriminalization, you know, I love that. Even though it doesn't have a direct business impact immediately, it will, it will down the road. There's no doubt. But like I said before, will it be 
two, five, 10, 20 years, who knows, you know, like Germany could be the biggest cannabis market in the world in 2024, 2025, or it could be the fifth biggest, who knows? It's impossible to know right now, but that's why executives and companies and investors can't bet on regulatory development. The regulatory development is what creates the industry and regulatory development is impossible to predict. So if you have a CEO come out and say they're going to make X billion dollars in X European country by any certain year, that's a huge red flag because it's impossible to know. And if it's impossible to know, you can't make a business to succeed because you don't know the rules or the regulations yet. So you can't make a business that'll succeed in that environment that you don't know will exist. You know what I mean? So, yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm really glad that you're taking that tack of trying to focus on some of the good guys and promote them, which I think is a brilliant way to go about things. So I will be tapping you up for some recommendations for other people to interview because I'd love to chat to them yeah, too. I love to. I think in terms of the decrim movement, I think it hopefully just starts to expose people more to cannabis and have a, a level of tolerance amongst society and realize it's not this dangerous thing that's going to kill everyone as the sort of propaganda may have led some people to believe. And then finally, I long for more reporting like yours to cover what's going on in Europe. You know, I think some of the reporting on this end, and it's kind of understandable because it's very early. Everyone wants to be very positive, but, you know, it's a bit self-serving as well. It looks good in your pitch deck, I think, big numbers. So, yeah, yeah. but hopefully that will evolve as well as as time goes by. But Matt, thank you so much for joining me. It's been super interesting. We really could have talked for a lot longer as well. So I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. No, thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please subscribe, rate, review and share the podcast. It will help me spread the good word on how this amazing industry is developing. I work with various cannabis startups to help them get funded and grow. I also work with corporates and international cannabis companies to help them understand and navigate the European cannabis sector. We're working with some great clients across the cannabis value chain and we'd love to help you too. Please visit www.canverse.global to get in touch.